0: Hey everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Ideology. I'm Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman, and this is our last episode of 2021. Kind of crazy to think about, and we were just reflecting on the episode we did last year leading up to Christmas on the incarnation. And we're going to unpack some of those themes again today with a little bit of a different angle, but it's pretty amazing that another year has gone by. Hopefully 2021 treated you better than 2020. Uh, I know we have a lot to be grateful for in our household and so hope you and yours have a merry christmas this season. So today like i mentioned we're going to look at the incarnation again and and uh, going to look at it from the angle of how god reveals himself to the poor in particular building on our theme from last week looking at poverty and inequality. And as always, Drew has uh, prepped a lot of the content for today. And so let's just dive in. Drew, uh, take us where we're going with how God has revealed himself and continues to reveal himself to the weak, to the
1: poor, to the disenfranchised, to the marginalized. So let's start off talking about the incarnation for a second. We did an episode on this. It actually released Christmas Day last year, and would love for you to go check that out if you haven't had a chance to listen to that one yet. But during this episode, we talked about how the incarnation is not just the prologue to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but the incarnation itself is an incredible act of God where God, the creator of the universe, became man, and the significance of that for our for our life, for our future, and for our salvation. And specifically what we're looking at is the joining of humanity back into the triune life of God. So we've talked quite a few times over the last year about Christology, where you have Jesus as fully man and fully God, and there's this fancy theological word, the hypostatic union, but it's this idea of Jesus's divine nature joined together with his human nature in one person. And that can feel very heady, very theological, and it is all of those things, but um, when you take a step back, what are we talking about here? We're talking about God uniting himself with humanity. And so what happened in the body of Jesus at the incarnation is is now a foretaste of what we're invited into. Of course, we are not God, but we are reunited to God, where our human flesh is joined together with God's Spirit, and that becomes our present, and that is a foretaste of ultimately our eternity. And that's what we celebrate when we look to Christmas morning, is that humanity is able to be rejoined back into the life of God. So another way of saying that is, in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, our human flesh is rejoined back to God. And that in and of itself, I, you know, that's how we spent a whole episode on it last year. I, I, that mystery, that beauty, that power, I, I know I can at least speak for myself that I have not reflected upon that enough and the significance of what that means for us.
0: Yeah. Like you said, Drew, we don't, we're not going to rehash the entire episode from last year. I do recommend going back and checking that out. But this just can't be. Uh, overstated. and I think sometimes we run the risk of becoming so familiar with you know a holiday or a celebration and the nativity scene that we lose the profound significance. And again, just stepping back and thinking about and try to put our, you know, ourselves in the shoes of first century Jewish individuals, the shepherds, the you know the, the people of Bethlehem, the people of Judea, the notion that Yahweh, this same God who breathed the universe into existence, who spoke, you know, light uh, into existence you know, that measures the universe in the span of his hand, that this same power that came down on Mount Sinai would be packaged into something the size, you know, of an eight pound baby in human flesh born in obscurity and so on and so forth in order to cross that chasm, you know, and to reverse the trend of mankind trying to reach God. And we've talked about, you know, the Tower of Babel as an archetype for mankind's efforts to build a bridge back to inclusion in that triune fellowship, but God transcending and deigning to manifest as a human in our, uh, in our shoes and walk through our pain and our suffering. And it's just, it's, it's a profound mystery. It's a profound reality, and I think it bears medita- meditating on this Christmas season. You know, as you and your family celebrate, just, just pause, especially on Christmas morning, and reflect on this mystery, this contrast of the God of the universe becoming a man in order to bring us back into fellowship with himself. It's this stunning, stunning reality.
1: So Advent, then, is the period of time before Christmas and historically has been a time of repentance and searching our heart and waiting Um, But what Advent celebrates is, on the one hand, it is anticipating and looking forward and remembering the first coming of Jesus, which we celebrate on Christmas morning, but it's also an anticipation of the second coming of Jesus. And it's this idea we've introduced of eschatological tension, which is a mouthful. But basically what that means is we live in the now of Christ's first coming, but the not yet of Christ's second coming. We live in the now where God has paved the way for humans to be rejoined back into the life of God. But we have not yet experienced the fullness of that, of what that will be when Christ returns. And so we are looking forward with hope. And we have our hope because Christ has come. And so because Jesus did step into the world, we have hope, but our hope is not yet realized as it will be. And I think a a powerful aspect of this is that the future is a very real thing, and God's not bound by time. The future is a very real thing, and our future is breaking into our present. And that's first and foremost what we saw when Jesus became man, is the future of God broke into the present in this very real, tangible, unexpected, unlooked for, or maybe it was looked for, but at least not the way people thought it would be, event where God showed up and broke in into the very simple, basic things of this world. And that's partially why we celebrate Christmas, the time of year we do, is that at, at its darkest point of the year... We celebrate the light of God breaking into the world, that in our helplessness, God showed up with his light. So today where we want to go is in talking about the incarnation to specifically look at where God chose to be incarnated and how he chose to reveal himself. Uh, So if we can maybe take the incarnation as a whole, this very cosmic view of what God's doing, I also don't want to lose sight of the way that God chose to reveal himself because I think that builds upon what we talked about last week, God's heart for the poor and heart for justice. And if you look throughout this story, you see God stepping into not just our world, but stepping into the pain, the brokenness, the weakness, the tedium, you know, the places of our world that I don't think that we often look for God. And that as well has incredible significance for what it means to follow Jesus. Yeah, again, we we mentioned this last
0: week, the fact that Jesus incarnated outside of the halls of power. You know, again, if if we were to step back, if I was God (laughs) and trying to you know, break into humankind's story and to redeem humanity, you would think that, you know, the insertion point would be Rome or one of these other great centers of human ingenuity and political power. Or at, at a minimum, if we're talking about the Jewish na- nation, surely Jerusalem would be the, you know, the place to, to show up uh, with power. Uh, and again, as probably as an adult for Jesus to just emerge, you know, and and For Jesus to be born on the outskirts of the halls of power, not just the outskirts, but truly, truly an obscure, inauspicious beginning in Bethlehem and on the outskirts even of Bethlehem, not even in the inn, but in, you know, in a stable. Uh, Again, it's just, it should be cause for us pausing and reflecting on the vast humility of God. To condescend to literal animal refuse. I mean, you think of if you've been in a pastoral setting before, and by pastoral I mean, you know, barnyard animals, and it is tactile, it is gritty, it is earthy, and this is the this is the setting that God chooses to insert himself into our world. And and you know, we've reflected on this before as well, but God then choosing this angelic visitation with the shepherds, these marginalized I know Drew will touch on this a little bit, but these marginalized individuals. Uh, There's just just completely you know, most of us we were drawn to power, we uh, power insulates people. If you think about, you know, the president of the United States or just any other person with political power or social power, they there's this kind of aura about them in this literal kind of physical space that you can't get into with bodyguards and everything else. And here, Jesus, he, he bypasses all of that margin and comes straight to the heart of, of humanity in that he manifests himself to the marginalized, to the broken, to the poor, and becomes so himself. Again, it's just an amazing thing to reflect
1: on. So if you look at the primary characters in the Christmas story, we see a lot, I I believe, in God's heart of who God chose to reveal himself to. And that's a theme I think we see throughout the scripture, you know, building on what you just shared, Mick, even the geography of where they are. Uh, You know, of course, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, but they're not there by choice. They're forced to go there against their will and probably at great cost. So that in and of itself speaks to some of the challenge and pain of the Christmas story. And then... They're refugees down to Egypt and, because they're afraid of their life and official oppression. Then they settle in Galilee, which Galilee at that time, there was a lot of Greek cities, so the Decapolis in Scripture, or some of the port cities, Caesarea and places like that. You know, you had these Greek Roman cities that were wealthy and powerful. Then you had these Jewish cities that weren't really part of the main Jewish power center around Jerusalem, and they're surrounded by these encroaching Greek and Roman cities And, you know, this minority group that is suffering in a lot of different ways. I mean, this is the context of Jesus's birth. But then if we look at the characters themselves, there's a lot of powerful overlap with some stories in the Old Testament. But just if we start and look at surface value, you have Mary, who's very young and doesn't seem to have much going for her as far as status in society. You have Elizabeth, who's barren. Then you have characters like Simeon, who we don't know much about, but greets Jesus in the temple courts. Anna, who's in the temple courts. It has been a widow for a very long time, and uh, most likely in some form of poverty. And then, Mick, you mentioned the shepherds. I mean, these are not characters that come from means, that come from power. I think it's worth noting, and this is a a cool thing to see throughout the Gospels, but remember with Jewish law that the testimony of women was not considered valid. And yet when you read this story all throughout, it's the testimony of women. It's the angel speaking to Mary. It is an unborn child with John the Baptist leaping in the womb, and then his mother, who's barren and old, who testifies to it, are the first ones to recognize the Messiah. Um, You go fast forward, it's, you know, again, it's Mary Magdalene and others at the resurrection are the ones that first testify that Jesus is risen from the dead. So all throughout, it's the people who don't even have a voice in society are actually the one that God chooses to bear witness to his coming and to his resurrection. So that, again, just tells us what's God trying to do here. He's revealing himself to the lowly. And we see that even in Mary's song, the Magnificat. She sings about this and proclaims this and testifies to this, that what God is doing is he's revealing himself to the lowly and the powerless. And that's revealed ultimately in God choosing Israel as a whole and a nation that was at the crossroads of mighty empires and almost always in some form of subservience to some other more powerful empire so you see this in the testimony of israel but then if you go down the layers you see this in the life of jesus all the way down to his small family these are not people who had a lot of power had a lot of significance and i would back that out even further just
0: looking at the genealogy in matthew 1 leading up to the birth of jesus there in the first 16 verses there are five women who are mentioned and and again that was not typical of genealogies at that time And not only are there five women mentioned, but two of them, Tamar and Rahab, are prostitutes. You have Ruth, who is a foreigner. You have Bathsheba, who was caught up in this kind of scandalous affair. And then you have Mary, a virgin in the the circumstances of Jesus's birth, were called into question because of the nature of that circumstance. And that's an amazing thing that the Holy Spirit would inspire Matthew to include You know, these women whose lives were pockmarked by these kind of questionable, you know, moral instances, and yet God highlights them and elevates them as conduits of the Messiah, the ones through whom God would choose to birth his son and go out of his way to state them in the genealogies. I think that says something about the heart of God, about redemption, about his care for, again, the marginalized and those whom society would normally
1: cast off. So we also see is within some of these characters, we see a lot of really powerful echoes of the Old Testament. So let's start with Mary, and I want to contrast Mary with Eve. So if we are familiar with the story of Genesis, where sin is introduced into the world, and there's a curse that's placed on humanity, and so a few things are shared. There's, and God says to the snake, that a descendant that will come from Eve will crush the devil's head, but his heel will be bit. And so it's this very interesting messianic prophecy that's embedded right there in the Genesis story. So there will be this singular descendant that will ultimately be the one that that destroys the work of the devil. But if you keep reading, you'll notice that a curse is placed on humanity. And so, you know, Adam has this curse of, of thorns and toil and hard labor, but for Eve, there's this curse that's placed on childbirth. Now, just for a bit of context, the name Eve in English is derived from Latin, but the Hebrew name is Chava, and it means living or life giver. And and so there's something in the vocation of humanity that's actually manifest in Eve that gives life and introduces life into the world. And that's what you see in this account of Genesis, and it's actually repeated in the flood account, where there's this emphasis of God's blessing to release life into the world, and that is this powerful blessing that God has put on his creation to be able to produce and sustain and bring forth life but the curse that's given to eve is that this thing that's an incredible gift will actually become a source of pain but at the same time there's this promise that's embedded in there somewhere that one of her descendants will ultimately be the one who reverses the work of the devil so if you fast forward to mary you see what is it it's in childbirth that she brings about the salvation of the world that This gift that's been given to bring forth life, but there's this curse of sin. Yet it's through this gift, through giving birth, she actually produces God Himself into the world, who ultimately becomes the descendant to crush the devil's work. It's just so powerful, this full circle moment where all these themes of scripture are tied together of God's redemptive plan. And rather than because of human sin, God wiping the slate clean and saying, Sorry, you don't get to be a part of my purposes anymore, which I think God would have been entirely justified to do. Instead, God uses humanity, even in our brokenness, our sin, and even in the curse of our sin that's on the world. God still moves through that to bring about his salvation. And I think that then makes Mary's response to the angel such a stark contrast to Eve, because ultimately for Mary, her response is, let it be unto me, as you've said. And basically what she's saying is she has submitted and surrendered to the leadership of god and that's what god was looking for that was her response that was missed ultimately with eve adam and all of humanity where we've tried to do things our own way so it's this powerful gospel story right there embedded within christmas then if you look at elizabeth who is married to zachariah and is barren in her old age and you note some of the parallels with sarah going back to abraham and sarah where she too is in her old age and barren where god's put this incredible promise on them, but there's a barrenness, and that very gift that's given to bring forth life into the world is broken to where they're incapable of doing that. And you see ultimately God's power and his breakthrough with Sarah, where way beyond her natural age, she's able to bring forth life into the world. What we also see with Elizabeth where John the Baptist, who is the very last and greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, and I'll pause there, I don't think people often realize that, but John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And if the Old Testament prophets are the ones who call Israel to repentance and point to the Messiah, John was the one who had the honor of being the final one who literally pointed to the Messiah with his very physical hand and called Israel to repentance in such a way that it paved the way for the work of the Messiah. Uh, He's the ultimate of what all the prophets in Israel were seen to do. And so just as Abraham and Sarah were able to, despite their old age, bring forth the line of Israel, you have Zechariah and Elizabeth, despite their old age, are able to bring forth the fullness of Israel's vocation, ultimately to prepare the way of the Messiah. And that's reflected in their lives as well. But again, ordinary people suffering, and you know, for those who do struggle to get pregnant, I mean, it's such a painful, painful road to walk and you see that even in these places of deep human pain of poverty of barrenness and uh, other things like this that it's precisely in these places that god is revealing himself in the christmas story.
0: Yeah and i'll just add that you talked about the reversal of mary from eve that you know where eve where there was maybe a stubbornness and a rejection of god's authority Where Mary subjected herself to God's authority, you see the same reversal from Sarah to Elizabeth, where Sarah, though she ended up giving birth to Isaac, before that kind of took it upon herself to bring about the birth of Ishmael. I think in Elizabeth, we see a patience and a trust or a faith in God that transcends even the faith of Sarah in that instance. And this beautiful mirror image from that Genesis account to what's happening here in ushering in the birth of Jesus.
1: So what you see is you see all these figures that you have, those who are widowed, those who are in poverty, those who are oppressed, those who are barren. And if you look at the nation of Israel as a whole, they were standing on the brink of a very bloody civil war and a genocide campaign that would happen for some of the people that were living during this time, they would live to see those days. All of this is happening and yet this is where God chooses to step into the world in order to reveal himself. That, to me, is so incredibly powerful, that God's cosmic purposes would happen at the very depths of human pain. And I I think of that, you know, as we've talked about suffering or talked about other topics, God is no stranger to that, that God chose to join us in our suffering. And I don't know that these figures necessarily all lived a happy life. I think many of them, their lives were very, very painful, yet they got to experience the tangible, physical, real presence of God become man and we still celebrate their story today. And I I think we take this story, and this is where we can spend the balance of our time. We take this story, and we see that this is the Christmas story, but this sets the agenda for the Christian story. That what happened at Christmas is a sign to us of the way that God moves in the world. And yes, there's tremendous amounts of suffering, tremendous amounts of grief, and I don't understand it. And if that's you, and I know the holidays can be very painful for a lot of people, All I know to do is say, I'm so sorry, and and it's hard, and yet I I take comfort in the fact that God joins us in our suffering, that God chose of his own free will to become one of us in our suffering, and ultimately God chose to suffer with us. And that idea is actually a scandal. If you're familiar with centuries of philosophical thought, the Greeks and, and other cultures just simply could not comprehend a God that suffers. And that's a uniquely Christian idea, uniquely Jewish idea, that God would be so attached to humanity that he would actually join us in our suffering. And a lot of Greek philosophy, that, that was their scandal with the cross. was not so much the metaphysical or natural um, arguments that maybe people might wrestle with today, but for them, it was this idea that God, the perfect God, could somehow join in human suffering. They just couldn't, they couldn't believe that. They couldn't understand that. But that's precisely what we see here in this story. Uh, but in joining suffering, God redeems suffering. That in joining into poverty, God brings us into riches, and, uh, and that's what we celebrate. It's not full yet, and that goes back to Advent. It's not here yet in its fullness, but we get foretaste of it, and ultimately we anticipate what is to come. So that brings us to last point, is that the same God who revealed himself this way in history is revealing himself this way in the present. And I actually just finished up a a research project where I was looking at global Pentecostalism and comparing that to other theologies that claim to represent the poor. And it struck me how if you took global renewalist or Pentecostal theology, one of its most defining features is the way that it's consistently embraced by those who are in poverty around the world. So I did some deep dive study in Brazil, and, and there's a neighborhood in Mexico just reading these research reports to a lesser extent, what's happening in Africa. And a lot of these researchers note that it's almost always people who are in the midst of a significant life crisis are the ones who are reached by Pentecostalism. And that stood out to me. And of course, I'm not saying that other church traditions are incapable of reaching people or reaching the poor. But my research was, why are the poor so drawn to Pentecostalism so consistently? And I think what it comes down to is the immediate nearness of the Holy Spirit, And it's the fact that a human can encounter the living God in their real life in a tangible way where they meet God precisely in the midst of their pain and their suffering. So there's countless testimonies of marriages all throughout the world where maybe a husband's an alcoholic and their family's falling apart. They're living in poverty partially because of systemic issues, but then also partially because of coping mechanisms that turn to alcohol and so money that could have otherwise been used to help improve the family's life is being wasted or, you know, things like that. And then they have this encounter with God. They get delivered, set free from their addiction, and it brings about a whole transformation. And that also, you know, hundreds, literally hundreds of millions of testimonies of healing, of divine healing in some way. And that's, if you're skeptical about that, I'd encourage you to read the research of Craig Keener, his book, Miracles. I, I believe I've referenced it before. But you have these people and their claim is that, God, the creator of the universe, is encountering them in their present. So it's scandalous, just like it was at the Incarnation, that these people would claim, as you said, Mick, that Israel's God would come to earth as a human. That's such a scandal. And then the claim that Israel's God is healing people, overturning things that might seem like a natural law, and bringing about a transformation. And then if we add to the scandal, it's that Israel's God would choose to do this among the poor and the lowly, and those that maybe from a societal level, we might say don't deserve it. That, that's another depth of scandal. And that's exactly what I think we see around the world today is that God is absolutely at work with miracles, with healing, with restoration, and it's entirely taking place among the same, the poor, the lowly. So it's in the slums of Brazil, it's in the villages of Africa. It's not happening in the middle of the major American cities where it's well-documented on social media and easily researched by the Western Academy. It's happening amongst those who are poor and in the greatest amount of need. God is continually making himself known. Now, I say all that, and I don't believe that means that it can't happen here, but I do think what we need to do is have a deeper awareness of how and where God chooses to work. And even if you look at the Christmas story, there's other examples. You have the Magi coming from the east, and whether that's Arabia, Persia, wherever they originated, you have people who have great wealth who similarly have this encounter with God so I do believe it's possible, but I think the way that we have this encounter with God is we humble ourselves. We have to acknowledge our limitations. We have to surrender our, our right, our right to our own freedom and to write our own destiny that I think is so caught up in the Western narrative and the humanistic narrative of the West. We have to surrender all of that, and then I think we have to join God in his work. We have to be at work, be present amongst those who are poor and those who are suffering in a posture of humility, and it's in that place that I believe as much as any point of time in human history, God is continually revealing himself and stunning in dynamic ways where we can see God.
0: And I know this isn't the point of the episode today, but I think we can tie these themes back into a lot of the other themes from this podcast. As you were talking, Drew, I was just thinking— about the pervasive belief in naturalism today and materialism—that is, that the material world is all that can be known—and I think for a lot of American Christians, it's hard to get in touch with some of the stories or the what you're mentioning Drew, with the the way God's working among the poor, among the needy, around the world today, and you know, and how much we've been influenced in America today by some of these other ideas about the nature of reality and the nature of God and and I think that's one reason why my wife and I have placed a value on trying to annually get outside of this country and and work among the truly poor and that's again not to minimize poverty in America but to to work among you talk about the the various slums around the world and just to see the way that God in his compassion and in his power shows up in ways that we don't often see in America. And the purpose of this podcast isn't to parse out why exactly that is, um, seeing miracles among the poor that we don't, uh, as regularly see here, but, uh, but God is, he's manifesting himself among the poor. And there's a, there's a different belief system often that, that gives room for the supernatural, for the metaphysical, that I think is, is diminished in our context, in our culture here in America. And, and I think something that, Drew, you advocate for a lot in your Pentecostalism, in your belief in the here and now ministry and work of the Holy Spirit, is that thinning of that veil in the American mind to anticipate and to believe that the Spirit of God's at work today just as he has been for thousands of years and, and still is around the world and other various places and locations. Uh, so that was a theme that was rolling around in my mind. And, and I think one other reflection that I would add is going back to kind of the root of this entire podcast. And we started here, you know, uh, 15 months ago talking about origin, meaning morality and destiny. And and this is an origin story. Obviously, we go all the way back to Genesis 1 for the Judeo-Christian origin that that we were created by intention, by a power that is outside of ourselves. But the the Advent season, the Christmas story, is a secondary origin, that the origins of our spiritual renewal renewal take place in the person of Jesus in the incarnation. And this is this stands in stark contrast to the, you know, to the narrative of our culture today that that has no true origin story or that we're the product of time chance in chemistry. I think one of the primary points of significance there is this notion of hope. That we have hope as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that not only, like you said, Drew, not only did Jesus come the first time, but the Advent season is about expectantly awaiting his second return and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth, the bringing back and the, the, the rejoining of heaven and earth. And that's a unique and distinct hope that we carry. And I look around the rest of the world and I see hopelessness. And so I think the, the church can be a light to the world today by living out of this different origin story that places faith in the Father as creator, in the Son as the one who incarnated and walked in our shoes, and then in the Spirit who's alive and at work in the church today. And that we have hope for the future. And so may that be a point of reflection
1: for you and your family this Christmas season. Those are great reflections, Mick. And to wrap up with this thought, I have great hope for the United States and our nation, for those of you who live here in the United States. I do have great hope, even as I talk about how God reveals himself. However, my great hope comes from the fact that God is continuing to reveal himself. And I believe that we can step into that if we recognize that we will meet him on the same terms as the Christmas story. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of us are hoping for God to reveal himself in the halls of power in Rome or in Jerusalem, and that's the story we want to write. And you think there was a lot of people being highly educated in these centers of power that were jockeying for social status. That was where their time went, their energy went. There were geopolitical events that were taking place during this time that actually did set the course of history for centuries to come, both in Rome and in Jerusalem. And I imagine there was a lot of people that were the upper middle class, the socially mobile, those who had status, where their time was dominated by all of those things and trying to secure human power. And those are the people that missed the baby that was born in a manger. It was the poor who didn't have access to that other conversation. They were the ones who were able to notice, and I don't think it means that God wouldn't have freely revealed Himself to the others, but they were just too busy. They were too caught up in their own story. They were too caught up trying to secure their own status and their own power. So I have great hope for our nation, but I believe it's going to be those who know where to look for God, those who know where to find Jesus, and it's going to look more like mangers and stables and shepherds and people that are a little too young and a little too old and don't quite have access to the power. But if we'll go to those places and we learn to look for God, we're going to see that God is alive, active, and moving. And it's this counter story that runs contrary to the stories of our world. But this is the story that has power. And it's not lost on me that it's, it's the poor, and it's the poor around the world. They're the ones who step into this, and I know them. And as you shared, Mick, that's such a value of mine as well. And I have so many friends, and I think of them around the world and some of the happiest, most joy-filled people I know because they're the ones who've learned to discover and encounter God, and they live with this deep awareness that Christ is one day going to return, this deep awareness of the redemptive work of God and this deep awareness of the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, and they walk in some of the greatest levels of joy and peace of anybody that I know, and I think they can set the example for us. Just like Mary became a role model, this teen girl who had not much going for her has become a role model for millions, billions of Christians for generations to come. Uh, I have role models of mine all around the world who are serving Jesus and don't have much by means of material possession, but they found him, and they set the example for us. So as we go into Christmas, let us look for Jesus. Let us commit again to surrender, to yield our hearts, to marvel at the beauty of the incarnation, and then a fresh commitment to Walk with God among the poor, the broken, the marginalized, and the needy, and find that his power is at work. So Merry Christmas, everyone. God bless you, and we're going to take a couple weeks off, but we'll see you here again uh, to the start of the new year.